Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and all the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta, and I really appreciate the introduction again with uh, Norman Borlaug, um, Carl Sagan, and Penn Jillette, um, kind of introducing that again. It's been gone for a while, and it's nice to hear again. Today, we're going to be talking about kind of some new frontiers and new frontiers on an old concept, the idea of fake meat. So when I was a kid, my mom would always cook me a, uh, when she was doing something with breading, like a you know fried chicken or something, she would just take the breading and mix it with eggs and fry it for me. And, and I always kind of was okay with that. <laughs> um, so doing fake meat a long time ago, but because this has taken on different edges with biotechnology and nutrition, I thought it would be really great to have an expert on the podcast who works in this area. And we're very fortunate to have Dr. Chana Davis. She's the founder of Fueled by Science, which is a popular blog um, that's doing really well um, so far. I check it out all the time. And she also comes from an extensive background in fake meat. So (laughs) is that a good way for me to put it? You know, welcome to the podcast, Chana. Thank you for having me on, Kevin. I am excited to talk about fake meat. It's definitely one of my favorite topics these days, although there's plenty else I would love to discuss with you as well. No, that's cool. And you said a boat, so you're Canadian. (laughs) You caught me. I am Canadian, yes. But I did spend about um, maybe 13 years in the States, and I moved back to Canada just about five years ago. So, Dr. Davis, you're an expert in fake meat, but where did you get your credentials in this area? Excellent question. Um, You know, I'm a scientist by training. I have a PhD in genetics, and I did my PhD with Pat Brown, who is the founder of Impossible Foods. So we, um, and we stayed in close contact. I would say I finished my PhD in about 2006. So, and we've been in contact ever since. And, And I've, you know, been on some long walks with him and just a lot of conversations as he germinated the idea for Impossible Foods. And actually, he went down the cheese route first and then eventually moved over to to ground beef. So I've been following this, you know, in in large part through my relationship with him. And because of that, um, I've just been, you know, I I share his his mission. And um, I find myself sort of, even though I don't have any official affiliation with Impossible, I find myself 
wanting to defend what when I see an unfair attack against them. Um, I'm also someone who is just very passionate about helping people to make, you know, facts, fact-based decisions or science-based decisions, which is not always, you know, you know, we know, we know science is not facts, but science is the best available knowledge. So making decisions based on the best available knowledge versus fear-based decisions. So I'm personally, I'm involved, um, you know, in my peer group, and this is something I'm sort of spinning into a career, um, allowing people to make just better informed food choices and not listen to fear-mongering messages and, um, you know, parents have enough anxiety without being targeted. So I think it's just sort of a perfect um, an alignment between my general mission to help people make, you know, evidence-based decisions with, um, you know, this sort of inter- inside scoop I have on impossible foods and my desire to, to not have people sh- shy away from a product um, that I think actually has a lot going for it based on fear. Well, that's a really good point. But are you also a meat eater or do you not do that? I do not eat meat. Yeah, my family is kind of a mixed household. I don't eat meat or dairy. I have My husband is pescatarian and my kids are vegetarian. So we eat a lot of vegetables around here and we eat a, we eat a mix of other things on top of that. Well, let's talk fake meat. And it's really a hot topic. And uh, if you go back to... Um, the history of fake meat. Where did this really start commercially? And you know that the first, it depends if we're talking about fake meat 1.0 or fake meat 2.0, because fake meat 1.0, as you mentioned, that's been around for decades. Um, Fake meat 2.0, I would say beyond meat um, would be one of the earlier ones that was actually on the market. Um, I was at a conference last week with all of many of the players in this industry or two weeks ago now. And it turns out they were actually, you know, on the market, you know, quite some time ago, but it didn't really take off. And then they took it off the market, did some more work and came back. Um, and then, you know, then the story really hit the public. So it's been um, it's been kind of cooking for probably close to a decade, I would say, although the, its predecessors have been around for, you know, for many decades. And I remember the stuff before, but it wasn't terribly controversial. You just had garden burgers or Boca burgers or whatever. And they were, the only controversy was why does it cost so much for something that doesn't have the expensive thing in it? And that was always the real question. So what has made the beyond and impossible different? Yeah, I think, you know, they have done just a much better job at mimicking meat for one thing. Uh, that that's the biggest differentiator. And I think they have, you know, I think the original veggie burgers were in some ways targeted towards, you know, the typical hippie, healthy vegetarian. And these are not, these are targeted towards omnivores. So that's a big difference. And because they're targeting omnivores, they are pulling out all the stops um, to make them mimic meat. And so they don't, they're not actually as healthy, I would say as old school veggie burgers, but um, they are a lot more realistic. And, and for that reason, they're able to actually, you know, recruit a much wider audience. But why is this such a big deal, though? Because I, I, I've seen over the last few months, you know, you look at the IPOs for these yeah. companies on Wall Street, they go through yeah. the roof, they're the buzz everywhere. And why is the Veggie Burger 2.0 such a area of interest? I think it's because it's sort of a perfect storm where consumers are really looking for something right now. 
I think on the one hand, they're hearing from their doctors and from all the food guides that, you know, half of your plate should be fruits and vegetables, but people that didn't grow up eating tons of fruits and vegetables don't really know how to do that. You know, we're in a health crisis and people are looking for a way out. So they want to say, oh, what's an easy way to get my fruits and vegetables? Maybe this is one. At the same time, there's been a lot of, um, you know, negative press about red meat, um, both from an environmental perspective and from a health perspective. So people might have heard from the World World Health Organization, you know, labeling red meat as a class to carcinogen in 2014, 2015. And then some of these, you know, international climate um, reports are coming out, singling out red meat as the biggest thing you should change in your diet if you want to reduce the impact. So red meat is sort of this perfect storm of vilifying red meat and celebrating vegetables. And this seems like a way to have your cake and eat it too. So can people think about this as a vegetable replacement? I'm glad you asked because that to me is a very important message that people receive. And my answer is no, it cannot be viewed as a vegetable replacement. And the reason is one of the greatest assets that vegetables have is their high fiber content. And we know that high fiber content, as boring as it is, it is amazing for your body. It fuels your gut microbiome, which creates short chain fatty acids. It keeps you regular. It's just, it's one of the best, best and most under-consumed micronutrients in our diets. And these burgers do not have anywhere near the same fiber content you would get. It has about the same fiber content as half an apple um, in about double, two and a half times the calories. So the fiber content is just, it's not zero, it's better than beef, but it's um, not anywhere near what you would get by filling half of your plate with fruits and vegetables as is recommended. People also complain about processed foods. And isn't this something that really is a processed food? Yes. Um, you know, I, I actually feel that these burgers are a perfect sort of catalyst for a conversation that we need to have to really understand what does a healthy food look like? So I think it's really pushing the conversation about if processed foods are bad, what is it about them that's been bad? Then you can ask, you know, do these burgers have those characteristics that we're trying to avoid? Is that a rule of thumb that only takes us so far? And that's what I would say. It's a a rule of thumb, but it's a rule of thumb that has limitations. And these burgers actually spark us to understand the limitations of, of that rule of thumb and some other rules of thumb too, such as, you know, one ingredient foods or all natural foods. So let's drill down more on this idea of processed food. I mean, why is it bad in the first place? I mean, we've been processing food for a long time, whether it's, you know, storing it or, jar, you know, canning or recipes or, you know, cassava. You have to process it so it's not toxic before you can eat it. So, you know, give me some more insight on that. Yeah, this is an excellent um, topic that I think is a really important one to get right because this question of is processed always bad um, is one that's going to be more important to just really be able to answer accurately as food technology evolves and we have more and more, you know, unnatural foods to evaluate. So the way I, that I look at it is this. There is a reasonable correlation between whole foods on one hand, you know, one ingredient straight from nature being healthy. That's generally but not perfectly true and on the other hand it's generally but not perfectly true that many foods that are highly processed um, are rather nutritionally bereft so it's a decent correlation but it is not causative it is possible to have something that's just directly from nature and is not 
you know, wonderful for your health. It's also possible to have something highly processed that is actually very nutrient dense. And I think in a good example here would be infant formula. I mean, it's, it's entire job is to, you know, nourish growing babies and it achieves that job very well. Sure. It doesn't have the immune benefits of breast milk, but you can hardly call it a food that you should be avoiding. So I think we need to separate, you know, the correlation from the causation and what, you know, where you get into trouble with processed foods and like, what is it that's bad about processed foods? The fact is that many processed foods are engineered purely from a, you know, hyper palatability perspective. The entire goal of the company is to make something that just tastes really good. And there's no, you know, concern for nutrition because people are not buying the product for nutrition. So you look at chips, you look at, you know, whatever Twinkies or baked muffins at the grocery store. People are not buying those for nutrition. They're buying them for taste. And so whoever's engineering that food just does throws whatever in there is going to make it taste as good as possible. Usually added sugar, added fat, added salt, and so on. And they don't, you know, do much to, to boost it nutritionally. So I think what I recommend, and this is this whole burger health evaluation has prompted me to do, is to say, can, what can we do? You know, what's a better way to look more objectively at the health value of a food? And I think a more objective way is to just look at the nutrient content, period. So, you know, what are the upsides of this food nutritionally? What are the downsides of this food nutritionally? Because there is no perfect food. And that's when you apply that lens, these burgers actually do fairly well because they offer a fair amount nutritionally. They offer, you know, a very a huge whack of protein. They offer a reasonable amount of iron and they offer a suite of other um, minerals, depend, uh, Impossible Burgers in, in particular also offer vitamin B12 and zinc and many, other, many of the other same nutrients that you find in meat. So they do offer nutrition and um, they, again, they're not perfect, but I think I, I just, I highly encourage people to view products more through the nutritional profile of that product rather than through how it was created. Well, it's a really good point because this really is the nexus of can we use modern processing technology and cool tricks that we can talk about in a minute. Can we use modern technology to obtain those kind of sensory characteristics in food without having to um, make it um, unhealthy, right? Are there ways that we can actually use that to make nutrition more available? Maybe that's my better question. And, and, And do you kind of see this as a trend? I think that a lot of companies would love to do this. They would, you know, unfortunately are, we're wired to just love tons of fat and salt and sugar, which aren't always the best thing for us. I mean, everything it's all, it's actually more about balance than any one ingredient, but the things that make our brain go ding, 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 ding are not necessarily the same foods that are going to nourish us, you know, ideally. Um, But I think there's no reason that we can't get better, you know, and better align what our brain's, crave and what our bodies need. And I know that the engineers, um, some of these meat companies, they, they raise this point repeatedly. They say, we are working on this. We, we would like to bring down the saturated fat levels and we are working on it. You know, we'd like to bring down the total fat levels and we are working on that. We'd like to maybe be able to increase the fiber a little bit more. And we're working on that. Um, so those are all things that there's no reason you can't improve on that. And they, they like to, they like to um, sort of joke and say, the cow, on the other hand, is not working on that. So we have a static target, and we're just going to keep improving. And they hope that they can eventually taste better than meat and be more nutritious. 
Uh, we're talking with Dr. Chana Davis. She runs the website Fueled by Science, but she's also an expert in fake meat. And uh, it's an important topic because as we move forward in this area, we do see hints of biotechnology helping to make the products better. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a minute. If you've been reading on the internet lately, you know that the question has been raised about how the Talking Biotech podcast is funded. I can see why. I mean, this would come up again and again. It's a high-quality, professionally produced podcast like this. It must depend on deep pockets from some major agricultural concern. I'm not sure they're getting your sarcasm on that. Well, I, I certainly can vouch for the fact that this is a volunteer effort. As the booth announcer for the Talking Biotech podcast, I get a lousy cup of coffee and my pick of the donuts from the box that Kevin doesn't want. That's it. But that's okay. This enterprise is not about making a buck. It's about sharing science. The podcast is 100% funded by Folda personally. And no outside funding is considered. Go ahead. Try us. Send us a check for a million dollars and see if you don't get it right back. The real payment for the effort is the flood of kind words, the growing numbers of downloads, and the great questions that we get from listeners like you. Thank you for listening, and now back to the podcast. The Talking Biotech Podcast is not in any way financed by the University of Florida and is not part of the Talking Biotech Science Outreach Program. This is necessary to state because of continued harassment about me and the university about the financing of this podcast, which is 100% by me personally. It also has nothing to do with the website TalkingBiotech.com, a URL I used to own, but when it lapsed and I didn't realize that was purchased by malicious interests who now put garbage on that site. Please, when you refer to this website, refer to TalkingBiotechPodcast.com, not TalkingBiotech.com. Thank you, and back to our interview. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Chana Davis, and she's the person who runs Fueled by Science. And she's speaking to us about fake meat because she had a significant portion of her career spent in the laboratory where a lot of these ideas were hatched. And when you look at this and you're talking about the engineers who are trying, well, we, maybe we can improve nutrition and sensory quality and, and find ways to merge them. Do you see it going? And I know I, I think I believe this, that in the near future, when you go to get a banana, you won't pick it off a tree. You'll get something of substantial equivalence or direct equivalence that you can't tell from the real banana, but maybe we'll have a complete nutritional profile that maybe a banana doesn't even have. And, you know, do you see this as kind of where we're going? Wow. I have to be honest. I've never thought about taking this to produce because it's pretty hard to criticize the way it is already. Whereas when I look at meat, I see that it has a lot of nutritional upsides, but it also has significant downsides. So that's one where can we hold on to the upsides and dial down the downsides? And I definitely see in the meat case that there will be mimics for, you know, just, just about every animal product that you get out there, which are more, I see as double-sided. Well, what are some of the other uh, mimics that you're aware of other than say hot dogs that they put <laughs> plant lips into? 
Yes. Well, um, you know, at this conference, I saw some eggs that were really remarkable. I think you commented on the Facebook posting, but I like my eggs. You know, if, if you had a backyard full of chickens, that's really awesome. But I think the, the numbers for how many chickens are on the planet and living in pretty horrible conditions is just staggering. And that's what these companies are trying to get away from. And, and their fake, you know, their fake eggs are, again, what their goal is to get all of the nutritional upside of an egg so they can match the they can match the calorie content, they can match the protein content, but they don't have the cholesterol. No, really good point. And, and this is a, but this is where I think we're going. And I think there's a level of engineering here that's really exciting. And the Impossible Burger has mm-hmm. this one engineering step in there, this genetic engineering step in there that allows the meat to have a little more meatiness. And could you talk about that? Yeah, the Impossible is well known for their secret ingredient, which is heme. So um, heme is a small molecule that carries iron and in your body it carries oxygen and then it also carries iron. And this, because of the iron, it actually plays a a heavy catalytic role in influencing the way that meat um, transforms when it cooks and then the sort of flavor explosions in your mouth. So this small molecule is is a critical um, driver of why red meat tastes the way it does. So it's very concentrated naturally in red meat. And now plants have heme as well, but it's much less concentrated. So impossible, once they discovered that this was critical from a sort of chemistry perspective, they wanted to get, you know, large amounts of it, you know, into meat, but from a plant source. And again, it's in plants, but it's much less concentrated. So they actually spent quite some time trying to look at um, techniques for efficiently extracting um, soy, you know, heme from the root nodules of soy and other plants. And they eventually figured out that, you know, it's just, it's not going to make sense to harvest fields of plants to extract this tiny amount from the roots. Let's just grow it in a lab doing fermentation the same way that we do for, you know, drug development or, uh, you know, making wine or something. So they, instead of extracting this and, and concentrating it from the roots of various plants, notably soy, they took the soy um, leg hemoglobin protein. It's called leg hemoglobin because of legume. So they took the soy leg hemoglobin protein, they put it into yeast, and then the yeast just crank it out in vats. And that is really, that re- what's really distinguishes them from the beyond meat. So Unfortunately, only Beyond Meat is available in Canada right now. And most people here find it very realistic. But every single taste test I've ever read online says that Impossible Burgers are meatier than Beyond Burgers. And it, and it makes sense because they have this flavor chemistry. Well, that is an important part of it. And you know, th- this is also, though, the part that introduces modern biotechnology into a food item that now makes people uneasy because people have that unusual fear. And it's come up in my discussions of this over and over again. So is this something that was, say, tested and regulated and all that good stuff? Yes. So for one thing to just point out for people is that um, heme, the heme that's inside plants is exactly the same as the heme that's inside humans. It's the same molecule. The difference is that the carrier is slightly different. So in humans, your heme is carried by leg, by sorry, by hemoglobin, or it's carried by myoglobin in your muscles. And in plants, it's carried by this, you know, soy, this leg hemoglobin. So the carrier protein is a little bit different. Now, in terms of testing, first stages of the regulatory process of the FDA, they learned that they could be um, under the classification of grass or generally recognized as safe. 
because this is such a ubiquitous molecule. But they wanted to be proactive, and they proactively submitted to the FDA um, their soy leg hemoglobin for evaluation. And when they submitted the, the molecule for evaluation, they came back, the FDA came back with, you know, requesting a little bit of additional testing, which is, you know, normal part of the process. Uh, Impossible complied with the additional testing. Uh, and much to their chagrin, they were in fact forced to do animal testing as part of, you know, the, the further testing. As a vegan company, they were uncomfortable with this, but they felt they had no choice. So they did extensive animal testing. And then they submitted the additional data to the FDA and then the FDA accepted it with no further questions. So that was, they basically went through a very standard process for getting that ingredient looked at by the FDA, responding to their comments, and then that was it. It was not particularly onerous. Um, and the ingredient was already considered low risk just because it's ubiquitous. Well, it's kind of funny when you mentioned that they didn't want to do animal testing, but if you're going to feed an animal something, you might as well feed it something delicious. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're doing a test on something that you know is already not a problem. So I guess if you're going to do the testing, you might as well do that. You know, I mean, you know, make, you know, if you're going to test something on me, make it potato chips. I mean, I'll be fine with that. Yeah. Well, the unfortunate part is the worst thing to sacrifice the rats at the end of it. Well, yeah, I guess if you got to go, you know, it's not, not not the worst way to go. Better than living in a sewer or something. I guess the um, the other big part of this, though, is just that the fears that people have in terms of the product. And is that something that Impossible has tried to address in some way that they've tried to allay the consumer's fear by saying, here's how we do it? Or have they just ignored the, tried to just ignore it and say, hey, it's safe. Don't worry about it. They, they actually told me that the, it has had relatively little impact on consumers. The main impact is just there are certain, you know, fear-mongering organizations that are attacking them and they have to spend their time defending it, but they don't hear a lot of it directly from consumers. They don't hear a lot of concerns. And certainly they're selling, you know, off the shelves, nonstop they're selling out. So it, it seems like this is not hurting them. It's just hurting, it's hurting their media team having to spend efforts fighting against it. Yeah, I guess that's kind of the case. The people who I pay attention to are the folks who, you know, they say the same thing about Impossible Burgers that they say about me. And um, and so it's, you know, I'm kind of watching and monitor that that space. And so I see a lot of negative press on them. But in terms of the consumers, I guess I go to Facebook and I see everybody I know has eaten one next to a Whopper and all that stuff. And they seem to be doing very well. And is that something that the company has anticipated? I mean, are they going better than anticipated? Yeah, I, th I would say they're probably doing better than anticipated. Um, Pat mentioned to me yesterday, uh, on Friday, we connected the day after um, they had just done their first grocery store release, which was last week. And he said they had something like over a billion social media, you know, tweets and responses to them going into grocery stores. Billion. A billion. Yeah, that'll keep the media team busy. But but I guess the, the, you know, is this a turning point? Because here you have something that most people who are feeling kind of health conscious and socially conscious about, you know, uh, you know, what 
finite greenhouse em- emissions come from animals or whatever, that now they feel they're doing the right thing, but now they got to cross that line and accept something that's genetically engineered. And is this potentially a real turning point in terms of consumer acceptance of new technology? You know, it, it very well could be. In fact, um, this one of my one of the most important things I learned about the way we think recently is that you know we think that we make rational decisions, but in fact we make decisions and then we rationalize them. And I think what could happen here is that these people accept these burgers because they want the guilt the guilt free meat. They want it, and then they rationalize afterwards that well maybe these GMOs aren't so bad. Um, and then that changes the way they look at all GMOs. Yeah, that's a, it. Didn't work for insulin. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, this is not this is not the same as eating genetic as a plant that is genetically modified because you're just purifying. You're using it as a process, and you're purifying the protein away from it. It's different, I think, than eating a genetically engineered plant directly. But look at things like you know sugar. Look at things like uh, canola oil or soybean oil. Those are p- products that are independent from the genetics. I mean, those are the same equivalent to what would come out of a non-genetically engineered plant. Yeah. And that's where this all drives me crazy because so many folks will say, "Well, I'm eating genetically engineered food." Well, you're, you're not really. You're eating ingredients from a genetically engineered plant, and it's really a nuanced conversation. Um, but when you look at uh, the hemoglobin or the leg hemoglobin, uh, are there any examples of um, where this is going next? Like what are some of the other molecules that are going into fake meats or other types of animal simulation? Is it things to do with vitamin B12 or will there be additional products that make it even more meat-like? I don't have a sense that there's going to be another transformative molecule like like heme. Um when when I visited I, the Impossible Labs a couple of weeks ago, they told me that, you know, their lab right now a lot of what they do is basically reverse engineering meat. They're looking at, they're running meat through these you know molecular analyzers um, and getting you know mass spec kind of data and then trying to run then running libraries of plant compounds through those same machines to see which ones have the same profile. So they're basically just building up this amazing library of what co- compounds are in plants and what compounds are in meat and therefore how you can recreate meat. Um, I think they said that heme plays, it, they think that they can rely on heme to actually help them generate lots of other different fake meats, um, but that it comes down to the dosing of the heme, again, because the heme is driving the iron and the iron is driving the you know, catalyzing the reactions. So it's a matter of getting the, the ratios right to catalyze, to, to drive the chemistry a little bit differently. So that was my sense. My sense that it was, it was still going to be mixing and matching a lot of the same molecules, but in different amount, for example, which blows my mind. I mean, I don't understand how do you create fish, for example, seems so different, but I know that they're working actively on fish and they didn't, my, again, my sense was that there wasn't going to be any I didn't envision particularly any new genetically engineered ingredients that were going to be critical. And it's not to say it wouldn't happen, but my sense was that they felt that there was a lot available just from mixing and matching what's already out there. Yeah, it's really an interesting science. And I, I was at a conference recently where they, the folks who came up with fake milk, where they don't know what to call it because it is milk by its components. It's all of the same proteins and the same molecules that are in milk, but it doesn't come out of a cow. And then they've also done fish, as you mentioned. 
But isn't it kind of interesting that you have the folks who are the anti-biotech folks now really um, on the same side as ranchers who say that this is a slap in the face to the meat industry? And, you know, have, have you been surprised by their reaction? A little bit. I mean, they seem like they went pretty quickly from saying this is a non-threat, I'm not even going to dignify it with a response, to, you know, taking legal action to defend the word meat and I don't know what changed so quickly. It's just they're not liking the direction this is headed. I, I may, perhaps what happened is that they saw some of the meat industry players like Tyson getting into it and developing, you know, plant-based products. Uh, Purdue and Tyson have both got, you know, fake meat that they're generating on their own now. Tyson was originally an investor in Beyond Meat, and then they decided to do their own instead. Let's go back to the health-related claims again. You know, how many claims are there now and, and how much val- validity is there really in, in the, yeah. in how these burgers perform? Well, if you, it depends on which um, company you're looking at in terms of what they claim. The impossible uh, impossible foods has really not emphasized health. They're not marketing themselves as a health food product. They're marketing themselves as a delicious, you know, alternative to meat and, and a phrase that I like, which is not theirs, but I think it applies is guilt-free meat. I mean, they're, they're not emphasizing the health. But if you look at their website, all they say is that they are nutritious, that they are a good source of iron, um, protein, and calcium. So I think that's very fact-based. And they're very fact-based. I love, you know, I, I have the same approach as them. They don't want to overstate anything. Beyond Meat, on the other hand, um, they either sort of play the health thing a little bit harder. They, you know, they emphasize the the cholesterol, lack of cholesterol a little bit harder, that they call themselves, uh, you know, all natural and um, GMO free. So they are, they're trying to sort of hint that they are a healthy choice. So the marketing is very different. And I think part of that reflects that Beyond Meat was initially sold in Whole Foods grocery stores. So that was sort of who they were playing to, to begin with. Now they're being sold in a lot of fast food restaurants, so I'm not sure that it really matters to those consumers. Now, so that, that's, that's what's being told to consumers. Now, the reality, actually, sorry, before I say the reality, I just have to, to say that it really irks me. I heard Ethan Brown, the, the um, CEO of Beyond Meat, he was questioned once about this non-GMO you know, offering and whether that really was a useful meaningful label for consumer health and the guy i think it was a guy from the verge who said you don't really you do know that there's no evidence that gmos are harmful for health right you do know that right and he basically danced away and said that we're we're responding to what consumers want and we know that consumers want this and i what i will say is that you just never know you know, humans are not good at predicting the consequences of what we do. So you just never know about unintended consequences. So he actually sowed a little seeds of doubt, which was just, I just have to call it on that since I have the chance. Well, you should, you should though, because you know that if somebody who's manufacturing my food says they can't predict the future based upon science. um, Yeah, actually you can. And, you know, we know the sun's going to show up over on that east side and it's going to go down in the west. And we know from understanding what 
the science of nutrition and of genetic engineering is that um, what the relative risks and, and benefits are. And, you know, he's kind of, like you say, just sowing seeds of uncertainty and doubt. And, you know, that that's kind of dirty pool in my mind. I don't like when companies do that. And, and I think he does know better. He knows that he knows what the science says. Um, so yeah, that whole company went down a notch in my books. Unfortunately, that's the only like fake meat provider in Canada right now, but that will probably change next year. So as to like in a more objective evaluation of health, and I would turn to the nutrition facts as my main. So when, when I ask, is something healthy? To me, there are two aspects to it. There's, is it safe? And here, again, instead of counting ingredients, some people say, oh, it has too many ingredients. It has too many chemicals. It must be unsafe. Well, no, let's actually be systematic. Let's look at every single ingredient and look at whether, you know, it has any health concerns, particularly at those doses. You know, is there anything in these burgers that raises red flags? And the answer is no, period. There's just nothing, again, methyl cellulose. That sounds scary, but it's not. It's just modified plant cell wall. So, you know, some of these multisyllabic chemical names just invoke fear. But when, again, if you're if I'm looking at this as through the lens of a parent and an, an informed science-based parent, I have zero, you know, safety fears. Um, so that's one level. And the second level is, you know, is this nutritious? And so when I ask is something nutritious, it's always going to be pros and cons. So, okay, well, what am I getting from this? And what am I not getting? And am I getting too much of anything, right? So what you are getting is you're getting a lot of protein, the same amount as meat. You're getting the same amount of iron as meat. And then depending on which company you're buying, if you buy impossible foods, you're also getting a bunch of fortification because they add the B12 and the zinc and so on. So you get a lot nutritionally. Now, are there, you know, macronutrients or micronutrients in there that you're maybe getting too much of or you don't want? And yes, the reality is both of these burgers are relatively high in saturated fat. They are engineered to mimic an 80-20 cut of beef, which is what most fast food is, so 20% fat. So they, because they're trying to mimic the meat, they also are very rich in fat. And now they're also, like meat, relatively rich in saturated fat. So that to me is the biggest health negative of these burgers is the saturated fat content. Uh, Impossible Foods comes in almost as high as beef. I mean, it's probably only a hair lower. We're talking like eight grams versus nine grams. Uh, Beyond is more significantly lower. It's, you know, six grams-ish versus nine grams in a, in a 80-20 beef. Um, so you have a marginal saturated fat benefit. And we do know that on the whole, if you look at a Cochrane, Cochrane review, for example, replacing saturated fats, with unsaturated fat is a positive for health. Replacing saturated fats with sugar is not, but these burgers are essentially replacing saturated fats with unsaturated fats. So to me, it's, it's, it's a reasonable to argue that there could be a minor benefit you know, not for someone who eats these on a, on a once in a while basis, but if you eat a burger daily um, and you swapped this out daily, I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if you see LDL cholesterol go down, for example. Um, they also use, as their saturated fat, they use coconut oil rather than obviously beef. Coconut oil, I've looked into the, you know, trials on this. And in general, it does, you know, it's a saturated fat, so it raises LDL cholesterol, but it also raises HDL cholesterol. So some people, you know, you could make maybe a, a moderately strong argument to say that coconut oil is probably a slightly better saturated fat for you from a cardiovascular health perspective. So again, it has a, it, it's not great because it has more saturated fat than you want to have, but the type of saturated fat could be better and the amounts are slightly better. So it's not night and day, but it is a little bit better on that, on that front.
at the end of the day, it's another technology that allows us to take one step further and just rethinking the way that we've always dealt with food. And it's a way of packaging another product and time will show if it does or doesn't catch on. The main idea is that if we're going to feed more people, it's going to take innovative strategies. And especially when we start thinking about animal agriculture and ways that we can deliver animal-like products to what a growing population that, you know, if everybody wants to eat like uh, folks in the U.S. or North America, I should say, it's going to be hard to do that without taking a whole lot more land to do that. And uh, this is one way that we may be able to supplement what we're currently doing in a really intelligent way. So if people wanted to learn more about you and maybe read more of your work, where would you send them or how would they find you? Yeah, there are three options um, or all of the above. The first is my website, fueledbyscience.com. And on my website, you can sign up for a weekly newsletter. Uh, I also am handle Fueled by Science. I'm most active on Instagram and Facebook. I dabble in Twitter now and again, and I'm, I'm just debating whether to go down that rat hole more seriously. <laughs> okay, so but you, also your um, Fueled by Science website, is, uh, is what's the uh, URL for that? Fueled by F-U-E-L-E-D. B-Y-S-C-I-E-N-C-E.com, fieldbyscience.com. Okay, so just like it sounds, field by science. Okay, mm -hmm. so I'll put links to that on the podcast episode. So Dr. Chana Davis, thank you so much for joining me and uh, thank you for the information on, the, uh, on fake meat. <laughs> My pleasure. I, I look forward to hearing any questions that come back about this. And thank you for listening, as usual, to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Write reviews on the podcast episode on whatever media you use to listen to it, whether it's iTunes or Stitcher, whatever, and uh, try some of the fake meat and uh, write reviews there too. Uh, it's just another step in the way in which we're using innovative ways to feed people something different. And, uh, you know, a lot of folks have a lot of opinions on this, but it certainly is just um, another way in which we're coming up with ways to feed people something that they like. So this is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science.
You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.